Great. Thank you both very much. Shall we pray as we read that uh, very dramatic, perhaps quite difficult vision, this part of God's word tonight? Father, thank you for your word, for the richness, the variety of what we read. Um, Thank you that your word points us always to Christ and to the gospel and to grace. We pray your wisdom now, something of the wisdom you gave Daniel, that we might hear and read and understand and be lifted in spirit and in faith and live out your word for the sake of your glory and your kingdom today and always. Amen. Well, I've begun um, sermons recently this month just by telling a story from one of the reformers from 500 years ago because it's the big 500-year Reformation anniversary. So tonight, John Calvin, he was brought up as a Catholic 500 years ago. Somewhere in his early 20s, he began reading the Reformation teaching, the Protestant ideas of Martin Luther and others. And in his words, he was suddenly converted to faith in Christ. But actually, his life as a Protestant pastor was often not an easy one. Uh, Within just two or three years of his conversion, he was forced to flee Paris, where he was studying and working, for his life. Um, when the King of France began um, excommunicating and burning Protestants. And he fled from France eventually to Geneva. We'll tell more in the seminar that follows. But from Geneva and Switzerland, he hoped to influence France with the gospel from, as it were, a kind of close distance, but from safety. Um, He actually found he wasn't safe there at all. He experienced huge opposition from elements of the, the citizenry, the people from the city of Geneva, Um, And within three years of being in Geneva as their pastor, he was banned from from the pulpit. He was excluded and uh, again forced to flee. He lived in Basel and Strasbourg for a while and eventually came back on their invitation, but even then faced another decade of hostility and opposition from elements of the people in the city to which he was pastor. He lectured on many books of the Bible, including Daniel. On this passage tonight, he said this, We know how God's glory and power are resplendent in all kingdoms if they are rightly conducted with justice. So kingdoms should show us God's glory, is what he's saying, by the way that they govern. But the greatest kings, he says, are the greatest robbers. And few share the power of a great empire, but exercise instead a cruel, excessive tyranny. It begins to sound very sort of contemporary for our, our world news, doesn't it? He says, kingdoms should be beautiful reflections of the divine wisdom, virtue, and justice, but rarely acknowledge that they are divinely created to discharge their kingly role. They're mostly tyrants, full of barbarity and forgetful of humanity. Now, he's talking about Daniel and uh, his comments on Daniel for his own generation, but very, I think, relevant for us today in our own world, too. Going back to Daniel, Daniel lived in about 550 BC and he saw that kind of tyranny and oppression that Calvin, uh, thousands of years later, also saw. Uh, The people of Daniel's time, the Israelites, had been exiled from their homeland in Israel to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, was humbled by God back in, we saw in chapter 3 of Daniel, Uh, And then his own son also was proud and arrogant and turned against God. That's Belshazzar. 
He was then replaced by another empire. He was overthrown under God's sovereignty. The Medes, and then another, the Persians. And we saw that last time in Daniel 6. In today's passage, we're kind of winding back again, about 10 years, to Belshazzar again. So, Babylonian Empire still. And the first year of Belshazzar's reign as emperor. It's possible that Daniel's people thought, hey, great, you know, change of government. Time for a new regime. There'll be a more friendly attitude to us. Maybe we'll even be allowed to worship God again or even go back to our homeland. But Daniel's vision that immediately came painted, didn't it, a a much more bleak picture of the future than maybe they'd hoped with Belshazzar. We just see tonight three things. We'll be quite quick, really. But three things that the vision Daniel received reveal about faith, as our title for the series goes, about faith in hard times. And they are hard times to come that Daniel sees. So here's our three headings tonight. I'm just going to put this up on the screen so you can see where we're going. Faith sees, first of all, inhumanity flourishing, and then inhumanity defeated, and then humanity restored. That's the first one tonight, inhumanity flourishing. We saw in chapter 5 that Belshazzar is brutalizing people and disobeying God. He is a brutal tyrant. And the vision that underlines that message of brutal tyranny suggests that this is going to be common, if not even the normal behavior, for many world powers, rather as Calvin said. Um, And so the world we live in is a world of chaos. If you look at verse 2 of our reading now, Daniel 7 verse 2, it talks about the four winds of heaven. In the Bible, winds churning the seas is normally not a good thing. That doesn't mean it's great sailing weather. It means that um, there are forces of chaos and evil opposed to God that are at work, churning up the sea. Um, They're going to rise... Not in the east, in Babylon, but further west, around the Mediterranean Sea, Persia, as I've mentioned, and then later Greece, and later Rome, and of course later the British Empire. And those four beasts are pictured in this dream in really quite alarming ways. And this is just one person's attempt to try and capture what these beasts look like. It's, it's impossible. They're, they're too bizarre. But you get a sense there from left to right of beasts one, two, three, and 4. So the first beast, if you look at the text, it's verse 4. The lion. But bizarrely, and they're all quite bizarre, he has the wings of an eagle. It's a picture of power, isn't it, the lion? Fierce and, and powerful. May represent originally Babylon. Others like that that came after. Um, But the redeeming thing is it it at least has some human characters still. Um, It it is able to stand on two feet. And it has a human mind. So it's not completely dehumanized yet, this particular uh, human rule. The second is the bear, verse 5. It's got some worryingly odd features about it this one it's lopsided Uh, it's got three large ribs in its mouth presumably that's the remains of something it's eaten and devoured and this is no cuddly teddy bear is it this is not something to tuck on your pillow at night 
It's told in the dream to kill and eat. And again, it may represent the aggressive empire of the Medes that followed the Babylonians. We don't really know precisely what it referred to originally. But it's a picture of all cruelty and tyranny and inhuman rule that comes. The third is the leopard, verse 6. But again, if you look, it's one with four wings. It's a very bizarre leopard um, and heads. So it's perhaps a symbol of speed, the leopard. It's a powerful, uh, swift-moving rule, this one. And again, it perhaps originally represented the Persian Empire. But we can't be sure, and it certainly makes us think of other empires since. But then comes the fourth beast. And if you notice, Daniel particularly focuses on this. He asks about the fourth beast. And it's the fourth beast that's expounded a bit later by, um, the, by God and the angel in response. This is surely the most scary one of all. The beasts become, one by one, less human and more brutal and terrifying as they go on. The fourth is the worst of all. Um, it's, it's got nothing that resembles anything human. In fact, nothing really resembling anything animal either. It's just terrifying and bizarre and powerful. Large iron teeth, verse 7. It crushes everything in its path. And again, it gets more bizarre. From, um, the, from the beast come ten horns, pictures of power, perhaps pictures of particular kings. Then another horn replaces them, and a particularly powerful and arrogant horn. And people think this may be a reference to the Greek empires and from them the Seleucids and some called Antiochus Epiphanes that came from them. Now if you're Daniel and you're saying to God in your heart, what's going to happen with this new empire of Belshazzar? What's going to happen next? And this is what you're given. It's not terribly encouraging, is it? Now if you kind of think, well, what's going to happen with Brexit? Or where's our world going with Donald Trump? And you can't give him this vision of four beasts. You're not going to feel great about the future, are you? And it's going to certainly turn you to prayer. So no wonder Daniel, when we're told he's pale face, he's terrified by what's going to happen to his people and to the world if this is the picture of future human government, if, if brutality of increasingly inhuman government flourishing is the future. So he asks about it, in particular, as I said, that fourth beast. And he's given some explanations. Again, they're not all that much clearer, to be honest, I don't think. But, and that's really the sense here. It's all mysterious in God's sovereignty. But verse 24, the ten horns are ten kingdoms who will come from the fourth kingdom. After them, another king will come, different from the other. And he'll speak against the most high God and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and laws. And again, there's been many periods in history when that's just what rulers have done. Um, they've tried to stop people worshipping. They've tried to enforce um, forms of government that go against patterns of normal human culture and normal human worship, particularly Christian. So, again, originally, just to recap, this may have been, uh, in Daniel's own context, a prefiguring of empires to come the Babylonian, the Persian, the Median, the Greek, and so on. But the whole point of this kind of vision in the Bible is that, it, in a sense, it's timeless. It has a timeless relevance. It, it spoke clearly to, to Calvin's day with European wars raging left, right, and center, and uh, Catholicism 
crushing the Protestant, uh, the young Protestant church. But in our previous century or so, we've seen Nazism arise, we've seen communism, and in our own day, we see extreme militant Islam, ISIS, and so on. But actually, empires don't even need to have a sort of circumscribed political boundary to them to still be dehumanizing tyrannies. Technology, uh, in a sense that one of the great gods of our last 100 or 200 years, the rise of science and technology that can so deeply serve us as human beings and enrich our humanity, but if taken to the extreme or abused, becomes another force of tyranny becomes our master instead of our servant. Or, in recent years, the liberal pursuit of, for instance, equal rights at all costs, whatever equal rights mean sometimes, that can end up, ironically, becoming very illiberal, crushing free speech or freedom of conscience or freedom of thought by enforcing a particular kind of freedom or liberal political correctness. Ironic, isn't it, that all of these things ultimately are human-created but end up being destructive of human flourishing. And that's what Daniel sees. That's the first thing faith through Daniel's vision sees in humanity flourishing. It's quite a scary picture. Secondly, faith sees in humanity defeated. This is where it begins to be good news. Daniel's book from this point, chapter 7 onwards, takes this form of visions, often quite bizarre visions of beasts and so on. It's a kind of writing called apocalyptic, it just means revealing, writing, revealing hidden things, glimpses, as it were, of human history from God's perspective. And that's really the, the point here, that whilst sovereignty, human power appears very strong, Underneath, behind, all the time, there's God's perspective, which is that all these things, he can see them coming. In fact, he's, in some way, purposing them, allowing them in his sovereignty. It's his story, history, in the end. And so empires like these beasts will come and go, and they have done since, as the Bible's told us they would. They've come and gone. But God remains on the throne. It's rather like that film of the Battle of Britain, if you've ever seen that, where one moment you're up in the skies and you're kind of in a spitfire and you're flying around and there's machine gun fire and cannon fire and it's all very exciting and fast moving and you cannot see what's happening and who's winning. But then it kind of cuts to the control room down at Biggin Hill or somewhere and down there it's all calm and peace and little pieces are being moved across the map of Europe and uh, aeroplanes are being moved into position to win the battle. And of course, you know in the end, if you know history, that the Battle of Britain, we kind of won that. But from the sky at that time, it was just chaos. That's the sense of Daniel. It's chaos on earth. Brutality is flourishing. but, But behind it, God is saying, it's okay. This is going somewhere. I have a purpose. It will be all right. And that's why, first of all, the inhumanity is defeated. Thrones will be set up, if you look at verse 9. The beast, even the fourth beast, will face judgment. Thrones are set up. Um, That's not thrones for them to sit on. That's thrones for the court to sit on to judge them. 
The beasts will face their day in court. They'll face justice. The one who's really ruling the world takes his seat. This is, of course, a vision of of God, of Christ. His hair white with wisdom, his clothes pure as linen, his throne burning with justice and power. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but it's God who will judge all inhumanity and bring it from its pride into oblivion. Some of us at the, at the GLS this week, as we were hearing, um, heard a, lo- a lot of great inspiring stories. There's one story of an Iraqi Christian called Costas, uh, no, Carlos, unlikely name for an Iraqi, Carlos. He was captured by ISIS and put on trial, told unless he converted to Islam, he'll be uh, put on trial and then executed. He was then tortured in unbelievably cruel ways, but refused still to convert to Islam. Um, And then, surprisingly, almost miraculously, he was released with a number of others to tell his story. And Daniel says that that kind of bestial inhumanity will face its judgment. It will be judged. It will end. Faith sees inhumanity defeated. If not today, then tomorrow. And I guess in our own culture here, we may experience moments of of feeling that um, inhuman ways of thinking are controlling us, preventing us from living lives of human flourishing or even living Christian lives of faith. Uh, Bullying at school um, or in universities, this thing of no platforming, speakers that may in some way say something that may offend someone, uh, effectively infringing free speech. What a reassurance, Daniel, is that All these systems and governments that do hold such human power and don't always hold it for human flourishing, but for brutality, for their own control, they will end, they will be defeated. Lastly, faith sees humanity restored. Not just inhumanity defeated, but humanity restored. Because that's God's purpose, is to restore good human rule to humanity. Did you notice here that Daniel is given as a kind of key for the future, the solution, as it were, to this problem of inhumanity, not a to-do list, not Daniel, if you do this and you do that, then you'll help and the kingdom will come, but actually simply a vision. So if God is saying, you can't fix this, Daniel, none of you can, but I will. So evil beasts are judged um, in verses 9 to 12, but also, 13 and 14, a human being will be crowned. A human being crowned not by us, but by God. A chosen human being will be crowned, and his people will reign. Or it may be the angels that will reign, it's not quite clear which. Verse 18, the saints, the, the holy ones. Four beasts give way to one man. Inhumanity is replaced by true humanity. One like a son of man, verse 13, coming with the clouds of heaven, given authority by God. If you look at verse 13, these are the kind of things we learn about this this son of man, this human figure, um, at this point nameless. Where the power of the beast is loaned by God to them for a time, as it is to all human empires, this man's reign is forever. See that? 
Where their power is limited, his is universal. He's sovereign over all nations. Where they grasp at power, as it were, from below, his is given to him from above. And where their peoples are used and abused by their power, his people, his saints, will reign on thrones in his kingdom. Now it is worth just turning here to Mark's Gospel because Jesus quotes this verse, verse 13, in Mark's Gospel. Uh, So if you turn, if you've got the Church Bible, to Mark 13, page 1019, let's just read this. I'm going to just close with some thoughts on how Jesus uses this promise and refers it to himself, no less. Verse 26 of Mark 13, page 1019. Jesus speaking here of of the fall of Jerusalem, of the coming of the Roman Empire to destroy Jerusalem, but also of his own return and coming kingdom, says at that time men will see the Son of Man, and you recognize this now, don't you, from Daniel, coming in clouds with great power and glory. He'll send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens, gathering, that is, all of creation to his kingdom. Here is Jesus claiming that his kingdom will come again as Daniel promises given to him from above from his father not taken stolen by him and lasting forever not temporary sovereign over all peoples gathering his people from the four winds not just over one little empire. And of course it's a promise it's natural to read this as a promise of what will happen when Christ returns in the future, as he promises to do. And we sung about that just now. But actually, in context, this is, in Jesus' time, primarily a promise that the events of his death and resurrection, again, that we've sung about tonight, are the moment when he ascends before the Father's throne and is given authority over all things. We don't, in other words, have to wait for the return of Jesus for his kingdom to begin. For the Son of Man to be exalted in glory, to come to God with the clouds of heaven and be given authority. He has been given it. He's on the throne. And the book of Revelation unpacks that a little more if you want to have a bit of homework for later. The language of where Jesus' kingdom is today has always that sort of double tone in the New Testament, the fulfillment of Daniel, if you like, both that one day it will be complete and perfect and we will see it, the world will see it, but also that today his kingdom is present among us through faith, through those that receive the gospel of Christ. That's how his kingdom comes. That's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. There was a theologian called Eldon Ladd last century who kind of outlined that, that twofold aspect of God's kingdom probably the most clearly of anyone before him. Uh, But it's straight, really, from the scriptures. Both here today and to be fulfilled tomorrow. He used the language of now and not yet for the kingdom of God. And that's the, uh, the sense of that diagram there, just to illustrate what he meant by that. If you think of the bottom, the lower left-hand line there, the present age, um, that's the world we live in. With all of its mixture of inhuman tyranny and humanity 
and glimpses of God's kingdom present through Christ. Um, But the top line on the right-hand side there is the age to come, and the right-hand, the the complete black line, that's the perfect kingdom. When Christ returns, you see the the vertical black line, the second coming of Christ. But in between the first and second coming of Christ, there's this two ages existing together. Glimpses of Christ's kingdom, that he is already on the throne, but not the full revelation of his kingdom. That's where we are today as followers of Christ in Norwich in 2017, between the two, the now and the not yet. Do ask me about that later if that's confusing. But I hope that helps to see how Daniel's vision of the end of tyranny gives us both realism that it's not fully happened yet. Clearly, we still have tyrants in the world, but gives us hope that Christ is on the throne, that the Son of Man has come and will come again, and his kingdom is reigning over all things. So as I close, it makes me think, you know, I might be praying as I am for someone, to know Jesus, and you see that they're great people, they've got so much in their life that's already kind of full and complete, social life, you know, academic life, or, or financially they're doing okay, you know, relationally, but you know, don't you, and I know that Without Christ, their life is missing the most important component. And they've got all of these kind of, these little bits of of human influence and rule that benefit them and sometimes oppress them, but they haven't got the Christ, the kingdom, yet. And we pray that they'll receive the kingdom of Christ through faith in him. Living for Christ sometimes is not easy either, is it? Um, You know, if at uni or at school... And you're praying for chances to explain to a friend what a Christian really is because they've got it all wrong. No one's ever shown them before. And praying for courage when the chance comes to do that. And I think this vision should give us courage. That Christ is on the throne. The Son of Man reigns today. We just can't see that yet. And therefore to have courage, as it were, to pray for that kingdom to come through us this week in our work, in our relationships, our families, our conversations. Pray for opportunities to put Christ out there, to name him as king, to explain to others what it means for his kingdom of justice and peace to come, to overturn tyranny and restore humanity. Christ the Son of Man is on the throne. One day, one day, not only the proud empires that appear to rule but don't really, not only they will see that, but we will all see it. And our friends and our families will see it. And we pray that that day we will bow the knee alongside them gladly, receiving the Son of Man, Christ, as our King. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank and praise you that you are on the throne. And whilst this world that we live in appears so much like that dream of Daniel's, that vision of inhuman powers of chaos. And whilst we might feel fearful for the future, we claim that promise that you are risen and ascended and in glory. Your kingdom is among us. Through your cross, you've won the victory and set us free from sin. Evil is defeated.
death will one day end. And we pray today that we may live as servants of your kingdom. Send us out from here stronger, more courageous, and more prayerful that as you teach us to pray, your kingdom may come and your will, the perfect human will, ruling over this world, may be done. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.